This podcast is brought to you by UK Coaching, here for the coach. Visit ukcoaching.org to grow your coaching skills and be part of the community. So today's session uh, is around developing a coaching culture, around working in a coaching team, in a coaching unit. So uh, we've got myself and Tom from UK Coaching uh, alongside Grant. So really, really pleased to have to have Grant joining us today. Uh, Grant's a performance solutions uh, consultant at the moment, but he's literally worked with everybody. So the list is endless. So he's had roles with Team GB, Man City, the Premier League, Cirque du Soleil, the FA, the SFA. He's worked with people like Jill Scott and Steph Horton from the Lionesses, as well as people like uh, Gareth Southgate and Derek McInnes. And actually, that's just a really small snapshot of some of the organisations that he's worked with and some of the people. So really, really pleased to have him on with us today uh, to share some of his experiences. So we're looking at around coaching as a team. We all know as coaches that we don't always work by ourselves. We might be working as a pair, we might work within a bigger team of people, whether that be other coaches, whether that be that you're fortunate to work with sports psychs and perform and support people and physios. Uh, so that's kind of what we're unpicking today. Uh, really looking around kind of three key areas. So the importance of, a, of the culture and your role in shaping it as a coach, looking around stretching and supporting yourself and others, um, and also the benefits of an interdisciplinary approach uh, and some tips for empowering and connecting team members. We'll go into some of those areas in a little bit more, more detail. So, Grant, how are you doing? Are you okay? I'm very well, thank you much, and thanks for the kind interruption. Fab. So we're going to go straight in uh, with some of the gold, I suppose, to start off with today. So we wanted to share with you guys kind of some, some top tips or some key messages that Grant's going to kind of explore in some more detail today. So we're going to give Grant literally two or three minutes, uh, five minutes max, to chat through these. And then we're going to unpick them in a little bit more detail in a moment with, uh, with Tom, who's going to ask a few more questions around it. So over to you, Grant. I want you to give us these top five tips and some of these main take-homes that you said you're going to pick up with us today. Uh, thanks, Paul, and uh, thanks, Tom, for, for discussing this earlier in the week. And I think take-home messages are important, but they're only important if you know how to start to put them into practice. And we often listen to a lot of talks and think, gosh, I'll implement some of that. And then we, 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 we revert back to type fairly quickly. And I think, again, when we're talking about culture, culture is a long-term journey, and it's continuous and it's relentless. But there's certain things along the way that if you remember, you won't go far wrong. One is, first of all, you know, you have two ears, one mouth for a very good reason, which means you should listen to twice as much as you talk. And I think as coaches, particularly if you're the technical coach, you're in a very strong and lead position. I don't think you're king. I've never thought coaches as the king, but they are the lead. And what I mean that by that is they have to be the facilitator. They have to conduct the orchestra. They might be the lone coach, but actually listen to what's going around you. You know, therefore, use your mouth appropriately, but use your ears sensitively and pick up not just what people say, but what do they mean by they say. And I think it's vital in any high-performing team, you're a very good listener and actively listen, which means when you're having a conversation, put the phone down. Don't look at it. Actually engage with the performer or another member of the interdisciplinary team. High challenge is something which all sport is about. It should be a high challenge. We've got to continually push our athletes, push the members of the interdisciplinary team. I think we're all pretty good at that. But do we know how to support that process? Because sometimes when you're really stretching people, they need support. And I think we have to understand what type of support, when they require it, how they require it. And that is uniquely, individually different to every human being you work with. And I have a mantra in my career as a physiotherapist over 35 years. I never once treated um, an injury in my life. However, I treated thousands of people who were injured, and there's a big difference. I think it's very important as, as the leads in particular. So if you're the lead coach of a group of people, don't be frightened to admit you get things wrong. It's a strength to stand up and create psychological empowerment. One of the ways I tried to do this recently, I was invited to speak at the duty of care conference for the Premier League, where they had every single elite coach from the Premier League and the academy system, 500 coaches in a room. And I was talking about the importance of psychological safety. 
The first question I asked all of the single group by a show of hands, tell me how many of you have had a knee, ankle, hip injury? As you can imagine, mainly a football audience, 90% put their hand up. How many of you had a back, neck problem? Again, 95% of them put their hand up. How many of you had a muscle injury? Again, probably 100% put their hand up. I said, okay then, if I was to ask you the same group of people, how many of you had a mental and emotional issue that affected you during the career? There's only 5% of them put their hand up. I said, okay, I accept that. But now I'm going to tell you a story. During my career as a practicing physio and professional footballer as a lead, I was married, I got divorced, I had a messy divorce, I lost contact with three children. I still don't see it, it affects me to this day. I get emotional, I can get quite upset about it at times, but I've learned to deal with it. If I now tell you that story, how many of you prepare to put your hand up? Everyone in the audience did. I'd created a psychological safety in the group, it's all right not to be all right. Sometimes we're at our strongest when we can show our weaknesses. It's why, again, when I recruit and when I'm involved in recruitment processes for a lot of companies now, it's a must that you have your coaching qualifications. That's never going to get you a job in my book. That's just to tell me you're safe at doing the job. What will get you the job is if you can show a degree of emotional intelligence. It takes you much further. Can you actually connect? And connect is not sending me a request after this talk and LinkedIn and saying we're connected. We're not. We actually, we have an association, but we're not connected. Emotional intelligence is when you delve deeper and actually you realize the athletes you're working with are not athletes first, they're people first. They have needs, they have sensitivities, they have issues, and you've got to be able to support that. Therefore, if you really want to invest in culture, it may start with a PowerPoint, but really that's all a PowerPoint is, it's a PowerPoint. Culture is something that you must live to every single day remembering what you're trying to, to develop. And it's something that you can't as the leaders, most of you coaches will be, stand up and say, this is how we're going to do things. You've got to paint a picture. You've got to be able to tell stories of why you want things, but you want to empower those people around you to take that on. So ultimately they become the cultural architects of the organization. You've got to create as a, if you've ever watched YouTube, as you, if you're thousands of you, have you ever watched the clip of the first dancer? the first answer, and it's a very important clip when you actually are trying to create a following. You actually have to get people to follow what you think's right and then empower them to lead it themselves. So culture is very, very important, but takes time. Well, cheers for that, Grant. Like, it's an awesome place to start. Uh, we want to start with some of the, the key messages that are going to come out for the rest of the, the time on the session today. Um, and also, hopefully, that will allow you a bit of time to start to think around any specific questions that may start to pop up. So I know during the end of it, we're going to have a bit of a quick fire question and answer with Grant. Being conscious of the last few Q's Coaches Club, there's been loads of questions come in. We want to try and answer as many of those as we can. There's some, some really, really good points there that link back to a few of the Q's Coach Club sessions that we've already had already around the importance of connecting with people, psychological safety. You know, we were talking about that the other day that we've recently done a Time to Learn session that you can link to. So yeah, some really, really good points that linking to all the stuff that's been happening from our previous sessions. So I'm going to pass over to, uh, to Tom now, uh, my co-host for the day, who's going to ask you some more, uh, some more questions and kind of unpick some of those uh, key take-homes you've given, as well as those three themes that we talked about at the start. No problem. Over Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Hi, Grant. Um, Hi. Grant, so interesting listening to you, and, and I'm sure that lots of people on the call can really resonate with the messages that you're saying and have already started thinking about how they start to apply some of these things in their world. Um, I guess on the call, we've got people from elite sport and, and a really high level of performance through to coaches who work in, in the grassroots game. So I've kind of heard you say about kind of having a, a common dream and, and almost a shared vision. Mm -hmm. How important would you say that is in terms of kind of guaranteeing or, or looking for success within the, the team that you're working? I think irrespective of whatever level you're working at, as you say, if it's the grassroots or the, the elite level, you've got to create a, a vision and a dream that people, it's going to stretch people, but, but people want to try and aspire to achieve or even better. But I think by doing that, it can't just be your dream. And that's why I go back to the fact of the ability to listen. Because sometimes if people can't put their hands up and say, you know, that's not possible, 
you know, and it's not then a shared one, it becomes impossible quickly. But mm. I think as coaches, yes, you know, yes, it's so important to look ahead, but are your dreams, and you find that, I think language is very important. I sometimes hear coaches talk a lot about my team, my players. Well, you don't own players, not your team. You happen to be the coach for that period of time. And I've, you know, I've even been in situations myself where I've heard coaches almost disappointed when one of their star players is taken from their team to play for, a, say, an older team because he's doing, well, I've lost my best player. Well, you should be delighted you've lost your best player because he's going on to play for someone else. And so I think we've got to you know, share our dreams, but this shouldn't be our dreams. They should be the dreams. Our dreams should be to see our athletes who are people thrive on the, on the field of play, irrespective if it's a young boy, a girl, someone who's playing football because they're blind. We should be trying to inspire them to be the best they can on the field but actually have a, have a happy and successful life off the field. And I think, you know, the mental well-being is a big responsibility. And I don't mean everyone playing feeling happy. That's not possible in life, and I'm not after that. But actually, I'm wanting people to embrace sport for what it is meant to be. And at the top level, that's about changing lives of others. At the, the level of grassroots level, it's about people keeping fit and hopefully keeping out the NHS and actually keeping healthy. So there are actually parallels to both. And I think, you know, particularly young, I love the fact I was involved in, in, in women's sport and its development in Manchester City because seven years ago when I first did a talk on women's football and I Googled Steph Horton's name, I could hardly find it in Google. I did it the other day and she was the number one hit. Mm-hmm. That tells you how far it's come on. And we should be embracing that because if that means young girls see Steph Horton as a role model and there's less diabetes and less cardiac problems. The legacy of women's football is bigger than men's. Usually, absolutely. And, and almost that, that role model acts as a role model for lots of different reasons rather than just the, the reason they're on the pitch. Absolutely. And I think, but that's also our responsibility as coaches because, you know, we sometimes forget a coach is a teacher and a teacher, it's not just what we say that counts, it's the way we lead our own life. And that's I mean, I'm not saying we need to be angelic angels. We have to have fun at times. We have to sometimes let what little hair down some of us have, you know, and, and, in, and smile and embrace life. But I think we are role models and we have to take the responsibility of representing the badge we do very seriously. But hopefully the badge aligns to your own values and then the people you're working with and they see those values as being important. And it is, you know, let's be honest, am I competitive? No, I'm not. I'm very competitive. I want to win, but I want to win fairly. I want to win by upholding the standards I believe in. And if I win by cheating, I don't want to win. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not it's not what you do. It's kind of how you do it, and the, the right way that go about things. And that comes back to then a philosophy, and a philosophy starts with a mission. And again, I find a mission a bit of a flat statement. I don't think Martin Luther King or Nelson Mandela ever set off with a mission statement. They set off with a dream. And I think that dream must be powerful. And it's the same for us if you take young children. And I think all of the coaches who are listening today, some of them can, and I think it's a very powerful message to give, but it's true. You can change children's lives. You know, you can empower them. So, for example, when I was 11 and couldn't read or write very well because I'm badly dyslexic, I had to go to a remedial school and I hated it. But the person who persuaded me to go was my PE teacher because I was good at football. And as he said, if you go there, we'll carry on playing you in the football team. And if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have gone to a remedial school, which significantly helped me to be able to read and write. And I was fortunate enough a number of years ago to get an OBE. Now, he's the first person I reached out to say thank you to. And he was 75, living in an old folks home at that stage. But I can still remember, it feels me full of emotion thinking of him now. So you have a very powerful role. And so for me, using that power affect the lives of children cannot be more powerful it's a wonderful thing to be able to do i think having having that awareness of that as a coach you you might say things or do things or act in a certain way that has that that impact on people and and i'm sure that coaches do it and and they don't necessarily always get that direct feedback from people but it's almost taking really seriously that with your your role and being a role model as a coach people hang on every word that you you say and everything that you do absolutely and i think it's you know, it's so easy to always want to improve your technical expertise, but actually technical expertise will only take you so far. And I look at, and I've been fortunate in, in football and in other sports, I mean, in, in some of the other projects get involved in. When I look at those people who are at the very top, who are, shall we say, coaching, you know, 
they're not just very good technical coaches, they're good human coaches. They understand, they have, they have, I was talking to a big psychologist about this recently from Australia, and she said a great word that I've, I've forgotten the importance of, it's intuition. And the top coaches are intuitive. You know, they can walk onto the football field or the netball field or the hockey field and have a complete plan in front of them and throw it away. Because mm -hmm. intuitively they can pick up, this is not the right time or the place. And, and again, is intuitive skills, are they trainable? Yes, they are. Because I, I think they come from, again, having two ears, first of all. Yes, having two eyes, but having a sense of your group. Yes, using data. Please don't think I'm suggesting you throw away data. I'm not. But don't let data dictate your session. The computer says we must train hard today. Well, actually, X has just lost her mother. Maybe the best thing for her to do is just go inside. But are you intuitive enough that you can pick up that? Because she might not want to report that in her well-being score. But actually, if you have created that psychological safety, an athlete can tell you, I'm not all right. But that doesn't mean they can't perform. They just at that time might need some more support. Yeah, just, just to jump in quickly, Grant, because there's some awesome questions coming in the chat box that link in perfect what we're talking about. I want to just jump in with. Yep. There's some stuff around. So you call it a... A, a dream and actually how you set the dream there's some questions in link with regards to yeah the setting the dream with regards to the balance and active the dream being set from the top mm. but also actually that dream being something that's fed up from from the players and individuals so whether that be working with a grassroots team whether that be working with a high performance team so what's your thoughts on that with regards to that dream and how much it's kind of top down and bottom up and anything in between i think i think it should be inclusive which means what you shouldn't do is stand up and, and tell everyone what your dream is. It's almost, I have a dream, but it's inclusive. And I think it depends, you know, and I think if you take one of the, 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 the last pro major project I was involved in was, was facilitating to build a training centre in Manchester City, so therefore all the teams could train that were appropriate under that umbrella. But my abiding memory on my last week in Manchester City was the week before I left on a Sunday, there was an under 12 tournament where Berry, who had won the regional sort of uh, and Rochdale qualified to play against teams like Chelsea and, and, and Benfica, and they beat them. At the same time, they was part of the community programme being taken by Paul Kelly, who is the lead of the, the, the community programme in Manchester, was training indoors. And it was wonderful to watch as there was boys and trade girls training. It just so happened that day at the Etihad City got crowned Premier League champions. <laughs> wow, what a perfect storm. <laughs> Precisely. And so therefore, for me, that dream must be shared, but it should be inclusive. But actually, you've got to take people along. And the bigger the number, basically, the bigger the organisation, the harder it is because you get a lot of people maybe not quite sure what that dream is. But I think it can start. But the one thing you should do is you should include for want of a better word, I'm going to use a bit of brandy here, it should be stakeholders. So if you're dealing with an academy, you must involve parents. You know, you must involve families. You must involve, but also involve those scholars, because I think it's, if I, I, I often wish I had a pair of glasses to remember what it was like when I was 10. I wish I was finished 15, and actually I'm quite stupid, so it's actually quite easy for me to remember. And I quite like that ability to myself. A 15-year-old recently to a group of children in, in, in Manchester, and they were, it was a primary group of children, it was my niece who was a teacher in, in Salford, so they got 70 children who asked me a lot of questions about football, and, and I love connecting with these younger groups because they inspire you to think differently, and they asked me a load of questions, and I thought my favourite question was, who's my favourite footballer I've ever worked with? And I thought it was a great question, but I realised they were none of them were old enough to remember Middlesbrough, Manchester City and the FA, it had to be a Manchester City player, and and they realised I'd worked for City for eight years, you know, and I'd spent time with the first team of the academy and all the programmes there. And I, I got them to guess. So we'll get Paul and Tommy. Who would you think I named as my favourite Manchester City player? I don't have favourites, but I had to have one for the children. So who was my favourite? Who do you think it was, Tom? Manchester City. Who's it going to be? Sergio Aguero is going to be top of the list. He's going to be your top. What about you, Paul? Who are you going for? I'm going uh, Phil Foden. Well, see, you're both wrong. It was Jill Scott. Because, I mean, again, what we do is we have this psychological idea or this bias in our head that all I've worked with is men's football. And I wanted them to realise Jill is one of the best human beings ever worked. She's fun, she's gregarious, she's got a wonderful story. 
Why do we just think of men's football? And we do. And people forget the value of actually there's women play football, and so they should. It's just a game. And actually, Grant. we've got to help break those barriers. So talking to children, I think it's important to embrace that. Grant, I feel like you led me and pulled down a rabbit hole there. Oh, <laughs> uh, 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 yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but something you said a minute ago I thought was really interesting when you were talking about kind of bringing in the views of the people in the group. Yeah. And, and who, who is that group? Now, I imagine for people who are working at lots of different levels, that might look a little bit different. But if you, if you were almost mm. developing this, this dream or, 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 or kind of finding this common purpose, who would you want to speak to? Who would you want to involve in the process to make it really powerful and really meaningful? I think you've got to identify who are the key people and the groups of people, but what you can't do is just have an open forum because it's chaos. You've got to, again, you, you already have an endpoint in mind, and your job, again, is through that curious guiding journey of discovery is take them down that road that eventually might get a little bit, bit diverted, but what does it look like? So what does it look like for a parent to have a young son or daughter who could aspire to be a football? Well, I used to give a talk to the parents at Manchester City about that and say to them, you know, do you watch the reality SAS programme? They went, yeah, well, your well, son or daughter is actually, you have more success than that than being a Premier League footballer. That's how hard it's going to be. So this is the reality. And then I would give them a story of that and then say, well, how would you like us to deal with that? So if you decide, for example, and I used to say this to the parents, if you would like to take your son to McDonald's one night a week for the next 10 years, to McDonald's, that means you've made 500 bad meal choices. What does that do to that 0 0.001 chance of being successful? Grant, we're not going to do it. We'll eat the nutritious video. That's a good decision. So what we're going to do is have a healthy family. So we produced a cookbook from Asda to actually produce a family for four for a cheaper meal than McDonald's is to go to McDonald's. And we actually ran classes to cater for the parents. So you've got to take them on a journey, but show them how. And that's just one aspect of it. But the, the more you talk, Grant, the more I feel like the football side, if, if you're talking in that context, or the actual technical side of the sport, is only a small percentage of that of that culture. I th I think you know that you've got to have a way of playing, and you've got to have a consistent philosophy. Coaches should be allowed to express their human qualities, but to be to a consistent manner. And therefore, so when a young boy or girl goes from the under 12s to the 13s, the 14s, there should be a consistency. And I'm a great believer in having having different themes. And for me, below age of 11, it's all about fun. It's all about expressing themselves. After then, from there's the youth development, which is the most difficult phase because everyone talks about, you know, children are going to grow. They go through something called peak height velocity, which we understand pretty well, but we don't understand the mental and emotional changes young boys and girls are going through. That to me is much more of a challenge. So I think it's important, you know, the technical tactical side is vital. But I think, again, and again, what we've got to do now, in my opinion, is be much cleverer with, with the children we have, because some of that can be done through the phone. Some of that can be done on, on different ways of communicating them with smart apps, with, with computer technology. You know, there's many companies out there produce great stuff for, for children to learn that. So, you know, football, I used to joke when I first got involved in, in, in Scottish and English football, it used to be like a game of drafts. Now it's like chess. And I think we've got to understand the difference. It's very subtle. It's a game of transition. And actually, again, it's a form of intelligence. So the tactical and technical side is very important. But I remember one of the staff at Manchester sitting, speaking to Pep Guardiola, and I wasn't there at the time, but he asked him, because he, he almost starts, I think, every training session with a five-minute reason why we're doing it. And he said to me, gosh, it's complicated, Grant. And he asked Pep, you know, what happens if the players don't understand it? Well, they're not good enough. This should be intact. And I think so that's that type of intelligence might not be academic, but ability to want to learn. And for me, coaches should want to create an environment where you want to learn. It's, it's exciting to learn. And actually, yes, failing is part of learning. But one thing that people do usually do is if they're pretty bright, they learn quickly. Yeah, absolutely. So Grant, you've talked about almost those high standards and how, how important mm -hmm. they are. From the teams that you've worked with, worked within, and obviously from your CV, a huge range of different environments and, and levels. Um, what? How do you make make sure that people continue to stretch themselves and continue to look for? You talked about learning being really important. How, how do you instill that within the the groups that you 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 develop? I, I think I think if you really are, and you have to be verging on slightly obsessional, just slightly, 
So don't be overly obsessional, but you've, you've got to have a healthy dissatisfaction of your own current level of performance. And I think when you recruit people into your team of people, you, know, you look for, for, for little signs. I used, to, I used to often have a bottle of water in an interview, and I'd always take a sip out of it and take to most people that interview. You know, there's 95% of that water in that bottle. What's your level of, of knowledge? And anyone who is 95% full are never employed. Because if, you know, I know myself, I'm still only 50% full because I've got so much to learn. In fact, the, the older I've got, they realize how little I know. You, you know so therefore, it's, it, I want people who show that zest for knowledge. They want to improve. And I think, you know, I also remember when I, and, and, and years and years ago, I was sat in a bus coming back from a game at Rangers, and we were very fortunate enough to win nine championships in a row. And I was sat next to our manager, Walter Smith, who was one of my best mentors in my life. And I could see him staring out the window as the rest of us, if I'm being truthful, were drinking a bit of alcohol. And I looked at him and said, Walter, what, you know, I didn't call him Walter, he was, what are you thinking? And he went, how do I win 10? <laughs> and I think that's a healthy dissatisfaction of your current life. And you'd want to surround yourself by people who are inquisitive. And not that they're not happy with achievement, but I don't think you should look back in achievement until you're a ripe old age like me, and then you can be more satisfied with it. And there's things, you know, I still wrangle with why we didn't win 10. And we lost it by two points, and I can still see a deflected goal in the 93rd minute, I think, cost us. That's what I remember. I guess looking, looking for the small things that could make a big difference and continue that, that pursuit of, of the dream. Well, 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 it's having, you know, you've got to have processes, and you've got to have processes that are continually evaluated to improve and continually, you know, I'm not a great believer in looking for perfection because it doesn't exist. But I do believe in, you know, can you look at yourself? I mean, one of my favourite poems is The Man in the Glass. And it shouldn't be today called The Man in the Glass because it's equally applicable to women. But it was written 150 years ago plus, written by a person who basically said, you know, can you look yourself in the mirror? And at the end of the day, have you done what's satisfied? And I think, you know, that I, I can always remember, again, when I was at Rangers, we were beaten 4-0 by at home by Juventus in the Champions League, the year they won the Champions League. And I can remember Walter Smith just saying to myself and Archie Knox, go and knock on the dressing room door, befriend the physio and the coach, you need to go out and see what they're doing, they're clearly better than us. And we did. And we then went out to Juventus that following summer and studied them for 10 days to see what they were doing. Because sometimes there are people better than you. And actually, mm -hmm. if you have done your utmost physically, tactically, mentally, socially, shake people by the hand and say, well done, because there are people better. It doesn't mean they're best. You know, all you can do is the best version of yourself. It, it, it's interesting because I think what you're talking about, and please correct me if, if I'm wrong, but from what you said at the start about that psychological safety, having that environment where you, you, you might make mistakes or you, you kind of put your hands up to say, I'm going to make mistakes in, in the process. It feels to me like there's almost that element of vulnerability as a coach, which helps you find curiosity and helps you look for the other, other ways to improve and develop. I think, you know, if you... Again, just often when you find the answers, the questions change, and that's, and that's part of life. And I think if you're not prepared to move with it, you know, standing still in sport is impossible. In fact, running's probably not quick enough. You've got to sprint often. But I think what you can't do is rush experiences. And I think the danger is a lot of coaches technically want to know more and more detail. That's often not the best way of getting better as a coach. I work with some of the coaches at Manchester City. And often I used to stand opposite them, you know, when they were conducting themselves in a training session or when they were in a game, and I would give them feedback the next day or the following day on what I saw them do, but what they also said. And sometimes the two were very different. And actually, again, it wasn't me trying to be, you did this wrong, you did this wrong. It was a bit about, well, you said this, but, but actually, were the actions carried out? And again, I think top coaches, irrespective of what level you coach at, and when I mean top coaches, a top coach, you know, it doesn't, it's not necessarily someone coaching the Premier League. It could be someone coaching in an academy, someone coaching in a community programme. A top coach is someone who is actually happy to take constructive evaluation from anybody to improve their own performance, and, but also know when to say thank you, but no thanks to. <laughs> That's interesting, that, because I think that to, to kind of have that, that key message that great coaching or top coaching, it doesn't matter what level of the, the sport you're playing at, you're in, actually, you, you, you can be a top coach and demonstrate all those qualities, whatever level you're at. Quick, quick thought, um, you, you've talked around kind of the feedback and, and having discussions with people. 
it's clear from the environments that you've worked in and supported that there's a real high level of challenge. Mm -hmm. in, in there, how, how do you make sure that people feel really well supported so they can continue to develop through, through their day-to-day their -day work? I think what you've got to do is, first of all, you've got to be able to assess their capacity to carry out certain tasks. So I'm a great believer in almost four ways of doing things. And if I've got an intern who started working in a program and, and he's about to undertake a task, I'll probably dictate how I want it done. I'll tell him I, or her that this is how I want it done, this is what it should look like, and this is how you do it. And it's written down, is that clear? Thank you, goodbye. If that is a person who has done one or two, but not quite sure, and they maybe got one wrong, I'm going to say, I'll, say, I'll take it. You watch how I've done it. You support me and tell me what you've learned from it. The next way is you actually do it the other way around. So that's me coach them through a scenario. The next way is supporting, where actually, well, you'll lead it, but I'll support you. So I'll stand back and I'll watch you. You can take the warm up. I'm not willing to feel with it, but at the end, I'll reflect on how you did it. Could you've done this? What about that? The final way, if you delegate it, you know they're good at it. They can do it. Just get on with it. But if you need me, you know where I am. And I think you can, if you apply those four ways of working, and you know their capacity, and they know their capacity. And sometimes you get it right, sometimes you don't get right, get it right. But I think support shouldn't be an interference because, I mean, again, the one way to make any coach, be it technical or an S&C or a physio, is, is stepping into the middle of their session. Unless something dangerous is about to happen to me, you shouldn't do that. It should be a reflection afterwards. And also, it's an ability to ask people. I, I've had staff who, shall we say, I suddenly, or it's been pointed out to me that such and such is not performing very well. And it's very easy to go to that person and say, by the way, senior session is pretty average. Anything wrong? Or are you far better to approach that person and say, listen, how are you? Everything all right in life? I think I'm struggling a bit at the moment. Granted, baby's been up a little bit. I'm just not sleeping. How do you think you're working? It's not great at the moment. Fantastic awareness. Anything we can do to help you? And so again, I think a lot comes down to your ability. And I, I used to, my job when I was a, sort of lead of a high performance team, I used to call it, I used to every day, at least twice, walk the shop floor, just hang around. And sometimes people would just say, Grant, what's he doing? I was just taking in what was going on. And I think sometimes if you have that luxury of enough staff, you know, you know, why, you know, I sometimes find it hilarious that a coach has an assistant coach, a goalkeeping coach, a defensive coach, and the coach is taking all the sessions and everybody are standing with their arms folded on the side. To me, surely that should be the job of the main coach at times. So then he can see what's going on throughout it. But sometimes it's that alpha male ego again. I want to take everything. So, and again, uh, you know, we've all been there, and, but it's yeah. not the right way to coach. So yeah, I think, that, I think, that, I think Tom, I think that takes us in really nicely to exploring some of the stuff around. So Grant, we've talked to you a lot around some of the kind of the, the top tips. Yeah. So we're going to move on to the next little bit where we kind of talk. So we call this bit of kind of, Five and five. So now when yep. we were chatting to you guys, you said, yep. you, had, you said you got like five tips really we're going to start starting to consider or think about changing the way that they work. Yeah. It's this more kind of connected approach, working within a team. So yeah, this would be awesome. Five minutes, five points, if you could chat through them, that would be cool. I think first of all, always encourage curiosity of all members of the team, whoever it may be. I think the danger is if you adopt a, a multidisciplinary approach, you know, you'll tend to find the physio never leaves the medical room, the S&C never leaves the gym, the nutritionist never leaves the, the eating area. And, and to encourage curiosity and get everyone to watch the sport that you're involved in and get everyone to contribute. And I think sometimes people don't know what they don't know and they, and they don't know sometimes what excellence looks like. And it's very difficult to paint the picture. So sometimes I would always encourage you to find out where there are centres of excellence going on. Where can you send your coaches, your S&C staff to see other things going on that actually will reinforce that area of excellence? I think it's vital when you're bringing in new members of your team, if you're operating in, in, in this more interdisciplinary approach, you know, when you're recruiting them, you've got, as I said, you, you, know, you know what will get them an interview will be their, their, their qualifications, but what should get them a job is profiling their soft skills and emotional intelligence. And the one thing I never do, try to do, is I never try and appoint staff who think the same way as I do. Because if I want a team that's going to be curious, I want some people you know, to think differently. And I equate that to my own relationship with my partner. I'm, a, I'm an accelerator. I like to get things done. She's my break. She's the one who tells me, yeah, but that could happen. And sometimes it annoys the 
out of me, but she's blooming right. And so I, I so, and employing a team of people, make sure they don't think the same as you. I think it's important to actually take formal and informal meetings and, and feedback too. We often are quite good at formal meetings around a table, but I'm a great believer with staff and with the athletes we work with. It's always a great idea sometimes to meet them away from the working environment, away from the, the, the coaching field, in their own clothes as a person, sit down, offer them a cup of coffee and talk and listen to them. And I think, you know, we're... We're very guilty of, you know, just seeing an athlete. And, and I used to love it at Manchester City when it was half term, when the boys were, were allowed to come in in their own clothes and have their own hairstyle. Rightfully, when they go to school, they wear a uniform. Rightfully, when they come to the academy, they wear a tracksuit. But actually, I like to see the personality. And I think it's important, you know, we actually, you know, see that as people. Again, I think if you are going to adopt culture, be patient and also understand it's a long-term journey and it's so important you connect with many, many stakeholders in a small group of people, the parents do of what you're trying to achieve, telling people and showing people what, what excellence could be. And, and, and mainly it's about behaviour, it's about human behaviour, because if you think about it, you want to be remembered as a team of young girl footballers who won the league, who actually had seven players sent off, were dissentful to the referee and actually didn't pick up their litter from the training field because to me that is too big a price to pay for success. You have got a responsibility to, to help them to be good human beings too. So what is the culture? Be relentless on it. Pick up small things and, 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 and don't be frightened to realise you as the leader, many of you will be the lead in your teams. This applies to you. I used to do something at Manchester City. It took time to test the staff. Because one of the things I didn't like was people leaving a facility untidy. They would ensure it in the medical briefing room, and it was called the briefing room, so physios didn't spend too much time writing up notes. Briefing, be brief, be bright, be gone. Don't leave any cups lying around there. But I intentionally used to leave my cup there intentionally to see which staff would tell me to pick it up. And if they didn't tell me to pick it up, I would tell them, why are you having a go at me? Because they realised that was intentional. Those were our standards. And actually, there is no hierarchy when it comes to standards. And I think if you're prepared to show that side of yourself, you know, people will follow because that's you showing leadership, but it's also you being rightfully corrected for certain things. And actually, there is no autonomy when it comes to behavioural standards. That's awesome, Grant. Thank you very much. It's so much stuff in there regards to linking back to make sure we're putting people first and putting our uh, athletes at the heart of everything that we do. So what we're going to jump on to um, is we're going to jump on to a bit of a, a Q&A section now. So it's going to be quick-fire responses, Grant. I know you probably love and you probably could spend for talk for hours and hours on just one question. We'll I'll try answer in 30 seconds to a minute, Max. Yeah. So I'm going to kick us off, and then Tom's going to follow us up. So I've been looking at the chat box. There's been loads of stuff popping up. Um, so one of the questions that's been in there is, so what are the big moments that have got you thinking like this? Uh, winning and losing, and how to get better, and continually realizing what we win with today will not be good enough for tomorrow. Cool. Uh, your next for us, Tom. That was quick fire, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Caught me on my toes. I could be briefly right on. Grant, um, could you give us an example outside of sport where you've been part of a really highly effective culture? Uh, in some industries that I've worked in, I think, again, one of the ones I, I loved visiting and did a little bit of work for was Cirque du Soleil in, in, in America. I did some troubleshooting for them. And when I looked at how they, how they perform, and some of these, these they're not, they would hate to use the word athletes, they're artists who've got athletic qualities, how would they prepare themselves? So as a Cirque du Soleil performer, you must do all your own makeup. You must put all your own costume on. And you look at these people who will perform sometimes seven performances a week, sometimes eight and they'll do it for 360 you know, almost days a year, some of them, and you're like, how on earth do you do that, and how do you maintain those high standards? Uh, but again, it, it, it's, it's partly the brand, and that people realise it is such a high standard, and they have to... Circus Soleil was outstanding. Next question for me, Grant. I thought this was a great one. Uh, it was asked around 
Have you had to deal with failure as a team within your culture? Absolutely. Listen, I've dealt with I listen, I've been sacked twice myself, so I know what failing feels like, you know, but uh I also have dealt with relegation, dealt with relegation where I had to make four foot redundant and it's a horrendous feeling when you're affecting folks likelihoods and it's it and you could argue, is it a failing of the performance team? You know, when a football team gets relegated, well, we're part of that team. So the answer is yes, it is. And so you've got to take the brunt of it. And it's it's a painful, it can be very painful. Uh, but, you know, you, I've been lucky in, my, in 35 years, I've won what with teams, probably 24 major trophies, but that's even less than one a year. So there'll be more failings than successes, without doubt. Talking, talking about failures, Grant, how do you plan for the, for the bad days to be consistent within your culture? I, I, I make for the good days aren't that good. For the bad days are never that bad. So therefore it's a consistent, it's part, winning is a process, losing is a process. And I think what you've got to do is sometimes when you lose, you've played exceedingly well and you've got to look at the bits and that's what you want. Sometimes you've won and you've played, let's be honest, badly. And so therefore it's what are you in your organization going to judge it on? And yes, we will be judged on winning and losing trophies, but actually sometimes, you know, you have done absolutely everything. So defeat, you know, it does give doubt, but the times to change things is when you're winning, not losing. We'll, we'll give you a bit longer to answer this one, Grant, because this one's a bit of a three questions merged into one from some different people. Uh, but there was one question talked around, should there be more focus on connecting um, as people are supposed to some of the tech and tax stuff? And I think that then linked into probably the next couple of questions that we put in the chat box there around, most important thing you look for when recruiting and how do you assess some of the softer skills? Say the first part again, again, just go back. Yeah, so the first, the first bit was around, uh, should there be more importance put on the connecting with people as individuals? Yeah. Outside yeah. of the, the tech and tech stuff, whatever sport you're I think, again, if you think about naturally, and again, I did a lot of work. I remember once going on a course with a, an FBI negotiator in hostage crisis, and he talked about the importance. If you want to influence anybody, you have to, first of all, develop an emotional connection with them. And so I think as coaches, when you get new players into your squad, you'll know these players maybe listen less at first or you don't have that connection. So you've got to try and build that connection. It's that, without that connection, you're not going to influence. And I think influence only comes when, what's the right word? You, you are actually empathetically connected. And I think it takes, for some, you know, you can build that with some people within a session. You can, it happens. Some folk, it never happens. Some, but actually, the key is understanding what makes them connect to you. And actually, that's where I'm a great believer in. You know, I, you know, we have a bad phrase in life, you should treat everybody the same. Well, I don't think you should. I think you should. Or you treat people, you've got to treat people differently. And also, you treat people like you want to be treated. But I don't agree with that. I treat everyone like they want to be treated. But you won't know how they want to be treated unless you ask. But how do they yeah. want information? How do they take criticism? How do they take praise? Do they want it in front of the group? Do they want it individually? Do they want a text afterwards? So when you're recruiting and you're looking at the soft skills, what I'll try and do is I'll speak to people who I know who I've got a, shall we say, a connection with and ask them, what, you know, would you take this person? And the given bit is the technical bit. But actually what I'm wanting to assess is, is what is their ability to learn? How coachable are they? Do they have coachability? You know, because that's what I want. I want to sponge. I want someone who's going to stand up and if they get things wrong, actually I want them to do a look at me and I'll try again and they'll try again. Because they they'll understand that they may get it right the next time. But I as the coach then must be patient. So what I but I I will take feedback, but I'll often watch them in training and I'll try and see how do they react. And I I never mind anyone missing a penalty as long as they stay, stand up and take the next one. So when I see the likes of in you know, well publicized the Stuart Pierce's of this world the guy of Southgates who've had that significant trauma, but did they come back for more? Yeah. And that's what you look in young players is, you know, you don't, you know, I was at a tournament not that long ago and saw, you know, an under 12 miss a penalty, which cost them the tournament. At that age, it was cloudy bad out. But what a love, 20 minutes later, he was playing and took the next penalty and scored. That's when he deserves praise. That's brave. Cool. What you got for us, Tom, then? That was less quick fire, that one, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, next one for me, I guess, when, when you're working in a, um, in a development environment, mm -hmm. you're not going to win all the time. Failure is part mm -hmm. of the success mm -hmm. to an extent. So when perhaps you're working in, a, in an environment where 
the people who are in positions uh, that may be more senior than you yeah. um, are looking for results and, and performance today or tomorrow. Mm. What, how would you go about convincing them or, or influencing them to say this approach is really effective? I, I think it's very difficult because people naturally, sometimes the people at the top of the gravy train, particularly in sports like football, their jobs depend on it. So they are looking at these people to just to, to sometimes use this person because they, they, they can probably help the cause. However, you and I know that can actually almost be detrimental to the player. And I think all you can do is try and persuade them about the long-term interest. And, and, and the majority of top football coaches, you know, have a conscience, do care about players. The majority do. You know, we always publicise the ones who don't, but the majority do. And I think it's it's what's good for the you know the long term player. We see too many one season wonders, and I'm not surprised because what we do is we judge it purely on their technical and tactical ability. We don't take an account of where they are emotionally and mentally. And so, therefore, I try and convince them of that way. But I also like players to play up too because I think that's a way of stretching them. But it shouldn't just be physically. The problem is you do it too much just for physical reasons. But likewise, there's times which young children, and I, myself and Dave Parnaby, who was an outstanding coach in Middlesbrough Time, the academy director there, one of the best coaches I've ever worked with, we used to sometimes hold players back. So we had, we had one who, play, who ended up being a full England international when he was playing for the under-18s, never played for him, played for the under-16s because he was too small. Mm. There's a great question here, Nick, next, with regards to... Um, and looking at some of the practicalities, so actually you've talked a lot around surrounding yourself with different points of view, mm-hmm. different ways of looking at the world. So uh, what's some of the practical things that you can do to allow you to make sure that you are looking at things from other points of view? Again, I think what you do is you sometimes, you can tell that by, by sometimes if you take, the, take a, a game of football and sometimes... You know, I often would get people who think differently to me to watch a game of football and ask them to give me a run and commentary of what they see. And hopefully they'll see something different to me. So me being who I am, always picks out the hardworking, industrious players, player players who don't track back a lazy. They're not the ones who win them the game. So what I'm saying is I want someone who's going to go on about that player player. I want them to see that. I want them to see things differently to me. So I think you can do practical things. You can just also ask them how they see the world and ask them about their own insight in personality. And they'll tell you, because if they tell you, I love to be surrounded by other people, I like fun, I want to be at the center of attention, they'll do for me. I don't mind one of those, I don't want too many, but I'm not that type of person. You know, and if they tell me I'm pretty red, I get angry about things I'm like this, I just see this, I want to fire, well, that's not me either, but I quite like, I need one of those occasionally, so they're going to shape things up. I'm more empathetic to read, I can be red, and I need to be red at times. I'm fortunate I can maybe, because of experience, I can flip who I am. But I, but I think you just go through different situations. You, you know, you ask them about different events. You know, you maybe, you maybe hold a, a picture up of Mother Teresa and Katie Price and say, which one shows more inner beauty to you? And most you, all under 25 would say Katie Price. I'd say Mother Teresa. Because actually I see the world differently. But I actually quite like that approach too, for someone to have that, because it's different to how I think. So I'm going to jump another one because there's a, an awesome one just popped up um, that's came through from Vinnie privately. So it says, uh, what would you say is your top point that guides special standards within a culture? So, for example, low clarity, known self, others, social awareness. So what would you say is the top point that guides uh, professional standards within a culture? I would say two, clarity and communication, that's all. You've got to clarify what everyone's role is, what is expected, and, and develop a common communication language and state the same thing. So, for example, you sometimes hear, I recently worked with a very eminent football club in Europe where I was asked to go in and look at a few of their communication issues. And then I got the head coach, the assistant coach, the fitness coach, two fitness coaches, and two physios who all worked together for three years. And I said to them, I'm going to give you a scenario. Uh, what is your role in the rehabilitation of a guy who's just torn his hamstring? And if I tell you he's fit to return in three weeks, what does that mean to you? Six people gave me six completely different answers. Therefore, no one's clarified what people do. No one's clarified their level of communication. And any, any good or any culture starts with communication and clarity of role. 
Awesome. We got one last question for us, Tom. Yeah, this one might be a great one to, to kind of wrap things up. So Grant, I think everyone's really, really enjoyed everything you've said so far. I've, I've, I spoke to you a few days ago, but I've got co copious pages of notes from, from today. Um, who supports you? What, what do you do to stretch, challenge and stretch yourself? Great question. You, you, you first of all, I'm a great believer in mentorship and I mentor a lot of people, but I have people who mentor me because, you know, we all need people who are going to, I use the term critical friend, which means they're going to at the right time tell you when you're about to probably get something wrong and they'll evaluate it. So I speak to peers in different industries. So I, I still, one of the, I, I speak to, for example, I, I don't mind naming you one or two people. I speak to Brian Marwood, who I work with at Manchester City, who is a, who's an absolute gentleman, but him and I every probably six, seven months go for a walk in the around Durham on the river there, go for lunch and, and we we discuss where we are and what can we do to support each other in certain ways. And I can say things, I could phone Brian now and say, I'm thinking of doing this and he'd go, why are you thinking of doing that? And I need to hear no more than that to realise I'm probably doing the wrong. He doesn't say don't do it, but why are you thinking of doing that? And just the way he says it tells me all. I still speak to Jason Wilcox at Manchester City. Uh, I speak to a guy called Dave Fever, Gary Lewin, Dr. Ian Beardsley, as people who I know I can, and so I have a network of people, and I have to lean on these people, but they also lean on me, and I don't think, again, I look on that as a strength, and I would say my biggest strength is what I don't know, but I know where to find the answer. Just one last quick sub-question on that one, because I think this idea of a network is really important with regards to actually all coaches out there supporting each other and actually building their networks. Um, so what, what have you done around kind of building that network? Do you kind of like map out your current connections and look for gap? What, what work do you do around that? Yeah. Well, you know, I think what you do is during your career, you, you build up a natural empathy and connection with certain people. And I'll give you an example. I recently was doing a project for a team in New York. And during the time that I've worked and spoken in quite a lot of different countries, I've, I've met a lot of performance directors in America who, who, who we are in touch with periodically. And I reached out to 12 people in America who were in eminent positions in American sport. And I, I sent the email, I can't remember, I think one Friday afternoon. By that night, I've got 11 replies. And the reason being is we, we, we don't think we compete, but we do. But, we, we, but we're not competing against each other. We actually understand the skill gaps in us all have limitations. If we can help fill them, we will. And I think, again, you know, we, we have this idea, I'm going to get there. Well, usually you're not going to get there on your own. I learned that as an 11-year-old schoolboy, that actually being remedial, two teachers changed my life. Now, that changing of my life could not have happened on my own. And actually, I think if you've got any coaches out there who think they're going to you know, crusade on and on and be the top, top person, when they fail, look around, see how many folk there are to help them. And I know I could pull my car over on the side of the motorway and I could have spoke to Gary Lewin or Dave Fever 20 years ago and say, I'm struggling with injury, what would you do? And it's interesting because like Dave Fever, 20, 30 years later, him and I were having a text conversation today still. And I've not spoke to him for a year, but we don't have to. Because there is an unofficial... And it can be done through forums, but actually that true connection comes from good human beings. Join us at ukcoaching.org. Whatever you're doing to help people be active and improve, we can help you deliver great coaching experiences at a time to suit you.